to the Jake Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Brainy, and this is episode 35 of the Jake, taken uh, after that little hiatus we took in December of the 12 episodes of Jake Miss. We're back on track. Episode 34 last week was a success. We jumped right into NFL offseason, did a little Bachelor coverage, did a little Cleveland coverage. Got a lot going on this week, though. This is a big one. Uh, first of all, episode 34 last week should have been named after Kevin Mack. A uh, you know Browns uh, running back in the '80s when they were really good, instead of naming it after Isaiah Crowell, who was the best running back on the worst team ever. So, you know, maybe maybe should have rethought that one. But we are back in episode 35. Could name it after Jerome Harrison. Everybody loves Jerome Harrison. He was a fantasy superstar for four weeks back, about like seven eight years ago when he was. Killing it with Brady Quinn and Josh Cribbs. Remember, he went to Arrowhead, rushed for like 260 yards. Was like, like he has the third greatest rushing game in NFL history uh, behind Jamal Lewis and Adrian Peterson. You know, those are two like all timers, and you know, Jerome Harrison right behind him, a, a guy that was a career backup. Probably would have had more rushing yards. Could have broke the record if he had not been stolen yards from by Josh Cribbs had two return touchdowns that game. They weren't throwing at all, and they won the game. And I mean, Harrison basically ran up and down the field twice, three times on the Kansas City Chiefs. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, if you want to, episode 35, we're calling it the Jerome Harrison. Maybe go after Calvin Hill. Yeah, he's a big one too. You know, Yale grad, who's rookie of the year with the Cowboys, won a Super Bowl with the Cowboys. Uh actually played in the WFL, the World Football League, for a year. Uh, I, he was on the Hawaiians, and uh, and then he came back to play with the Redskins and then the Browns later. So, uh, you know, and, and now he's actually made a, you know, a name for himself after his football career. Obviously, he's Grant Hill's dad, so, you know, the father-son rookie of the year combo is pretty interesting. Son's a Hall of Famer. Uh, his wife was actually like Hillary Clinton's uh, roommate. At I think Wesleyan they went to, so you know yeah we'll name it after Calvin Hill the Calvin Hill episode episode thirty five the Jake, but bigger things than just Browns cast off rejects and could have been would have beens. It was a big week. Jim Tome is in the Hall of Fame. My favorite Cleveland Indian of all time, possibly favorite athlete of all time. Not really, but possibly close. Uh, in the Hall of Fame, he got elected yesterday with Chipper Jones, Vlad Guerrero, and Trevor Hoffman. A really good class going in. I mean, those are those are some stud names, and really pumped because you know a lot of people don't know how great Jim Tomey was. Some say he's a compiler. Others discredit him because he played in the steroid era, but he was never caught up in any of those allegations. He was never, you know, even mentioned on any of those reports. You know, Jim Tomei was just a big Iowa boy that could swing. And, uh, you know, I, I've been a big fan of his his entire career. Even when he left the Indians and played elsewhere, I still rooted for him. Uh, I even won a bet because one of my good friends, uh, who's probably just trying to goad me and say, you know, oh, he's not going to make the Hall of Fame or it'll take him a really long time. And I'm like, no, he has 600-plus home runs. You know, that's, that's a small list. And he had – and. You know, a lot of people think, oh, he was like Adam Dunn. It was either home run or strikeout. It's like not even close. He was one of the best, you know, walk rates in the league. He got on base. He got other hits other than home runs, too. 
he wasn't this one trick pony. Jim Tomei was an all star, and uh, and he, now he's a Hall of Famer in his first year of eligibility. So congratulations to Mr. Tomei. Uh, maybe I'll have to take a trip out to Cooperstown in late July, go see the enshrinement. That'd be pretty cool. So big fan of uh, of that move to get him in. You can see the call on MLB.com. You see him getting in. It's pretty awesome. But uh, we have another, you know, just another Hall of Famer. And this is not many first ballot Hall of Famers for Cleveland sports. You know, in my lifetime, there are only going to be a few. And LeBron James will be another one that he'll get in. But the way the basketball does theirs is interesting because they don't really do NBA. It's just basketball Hall of Fame. So people can get in based on just college career. Like, that's how Grant Hill was in. He wasn't a Hall of Fame NBA player. He was a good NBA player, but he wasn't a Hall of Famer. But at Duke, he was like, you know, Mr. Clutch, and he was like a big-timer. And same with Christian Leitner. He's one of the best college basketball players of all time. So to get into the Basketball Hall of Fame, it, it's much easier than it is for some of these other leagues. And the NFL lets in a lot of guys at once, and, you know, while they can be stingy about who they let in, you know, a lot of people are complaining about T.O. and Randy Moss right now that, that you know they might be making these guys wait because they had bad attitudes or whatever. So you see that sometimes. In baseball, they care so much about the steroid era, they're being really harsh. So the fact that Jim Tomei got in against those odds is big as well. But I'm not going to sit here and talk about Jim Tomei all day. That only has so many fans listening. Uh, for Jim Tomei facts. But uh, this week, you know, last week we talked about running backs in the NFL draft this year. Uh, I want to cover a position each week, and we're going to go over D-backs this week. So D-backs is a really deep group this year. Um, both at corner and safety, you got a lot of talent in the first two to three rounds. Uh, it's, it's one of the deeper spots. Running backs really deep. Quarterback is very top-heavy. D-back is deep. There's not all that much on the offensive line, or I should say offensive tackle, because there are some really good guards and centers coming out. It doesn't seem like there's much at wide receiver. Tackle, uh, tight end seems about average like it usually does. Linebacker has some really high, interesting prospects, but that's, you know, that's all that sticks out. D-line, there's not a whole lot to be excited about, but D-backs, there are some really good ones. It was really hard to come up with a top five because, you know, I, I I came up with my five, and then I wanted to take a look at some other lists. You know, I wanted to see what Mike Mayock had to say, what Daniel Jeremiah had to say. Now that we're at the, um, the Senior Bowl week, I wanted to see if anyone stuck out there, and there was that, you know, cracked my list too. So, uh, so I'll just jump right into the cornerbacks, starting with my first overall, which this guy is like a top 15, top 16 prospect. None of these cornerbacks are locks for the top 10, but there are, I think, four or five that could go first round. That's how deep this class is. So the first one I have is Denzel Ward out of Ohio State, and that's not a homer pick. Ohio State has produced some really good cornerbacks recently, and if you're going to jump down my throat by saying Eli Apple, just relax. I know that he hasn't had the career that everyone's been hoping for him to have, but... But other than him, you know, Bradley Roby has turned in a really nice young career. Malik Hooker was doing great at safety before he got hurt. Uh, Marshawn Lattimore is Defensive Rookie of the Year this year. 
and the, you know, Garon Conley is another one that he was looking really good when he was on the field. He battled some injuries. So right now, Ohio State is the place to turn for cornerback prospects, for D-back prospects. They're, they're producing guys each and every year. And I think Denzel Ward it, it fits the mold. He sticks to receivers really well. He turns his hips uh, pretty fluidly with receivers. He uh, reminds me a lot of Bradley Roby. You know, if if people, I think he's going to be better than Roby. I think he's somewhere between Roby and Lattimore in terms of where these cornerbacks were coming out. He's not quite the physically gifted that uh, Marshawn Lattimore is, but uh, when you see him play, he's very similar in style. He sticks to the receivers like glue. It's it's really impressive. Now my next one, and this was this was a tough one because I thought one and two were the closest of anyone on this list. With number two, I've got Josh Jackson, cornerback from Iowa. He could easily be number one. I actually think he'll get drafted higher than Denzel Ward will, uh, based on his size. He's six one, one ninety five, which is huge for a cornerback. When he gets the ball, he almost looks like a running back out there. It's, I mean, he is physically much bigger, much like Marshawn Lattimore last year. He's he's right around the same size as Lattimore. Uh, he's not like the glue type defender, but he's physical. He's fast, and he's got insanely great hands. Like, if you saw him play against Wisconsin and Ohio State, uh, he made, I, I think he had four interceptions total. He returned two against Wisconsin for touchdowns, and he had that one really nice pick with one hand against Ohio State on, on the goal line that basically sealed that and ended Ohio State's playoff chances. It was, uh, he he's great. Uh, he's... I think the he's got a better chance of making a top 10 pick. I don't have him higher rated than Denzel Ward. He might get ahead of him once combine numbers come in and see how fast he actually is. If he's the same speed as Ward, I, I might want to put him ahead of him. But Josh Jackson, he's he's impressive, and he reminds me a lot of Antonio Cromartie. I'm just talking about the football player. I'm not talking about anything off the field, but the way he is physical, he's long, he's athletic, and he's the type that when the ball is in his hands, he is, I mean, he gets the ball in his hands a lot. He led the nation in interceptions, and he returned two for touchdowns against Wisconsin alone. He's an athlete, and I think at the cornerback position, he could be a number one type guy. I think Denzel Ward can also be a number one. I think these are the two, the top two that really stick out this year. Um, and I think they are a good amount higher than three right now. And number three for me is another physical guy, another big guy. It's Mike Hughes from UCF. He's not very high on everyone's lists. Jeremiah is big on him right now, and there are going to be people that are more into him the more they see from him because the level of competition wasn't that great playing for UCF. But I think once you see him at all of these events, and I think... You know, a lot of people like to slam the combine, um, and they like to say like, "Oh, you know, it's like the underwear Olympics, and you don't really know as much." I think you know, you know, you don't learn as much about the players, and I think that's true. But when it comes to D backs, I think you learn plenty about them because some of these guys you have to, you know, 
it's different if it's a quarterback, right? If it's a QB, he's throwing on air, who cares? But if it's a DB, you really need to know his speed, what he can handle, like, you know, height, weight, you know, who he can cover. You learn a lot about them at these combines because, you know, everyone's on the same level playing field at this point. And I think that's where Hughes is going to step up. He's another big corner. He was physical at UCF, but we're not, we don't know his level of competition yet. So I think that's where he's going to step up and kind of jump into that third spot. Uh, I believe he's 6'1", which is another big corner. Number four, Jair Alexander. Jair, Jair I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, out of Louisville. He's another small one, going back to the smaller corners, but he's really quick, and I think... The only reason he was so low on some people's list is because he's smaller. But, you know, the way that the NFL is now treating smaller DBs, um, you know, I, I think quickness really helps more than anything because it's hard to be physical at the NFL level. So as much as it's, you know, a benefit to have the size and the length that these other guys do, if your quickness is like Alexander's and it's he is – no one completed passes to him this year. He was one of the better number-wise, at least, according to PFF, about you know when targeted, he was tough to complete passes to because he was always around the receivers. So I think that'll show, too, in his numbers at the Combine. Uh, he's not the senior bowl or anything like that now, but Jer Alexander, another guy that could possibly slip into the first round, maybe those like late 20s, early 30s, that's kind of his range. Uh, the final and fifth spot, this was really tough. I uh, I didn't want to like, I, I think I'm going to leave this open right now to either Carlton Davis from Auburn, who's a big guy, and Dante Jackson out of LSU. Um, two SEC corners. You know, this is a deep class, and, and I've heard both of these guys as possible first-round picks. Right now, I'd like to see more because... Dante Jackson was one of two really good corners at LSU, with Kevin Tolliver being the other one. So going forward, you know maybe he won't have that shadow to live under. And LSU's always got a bunch of defenders that it's hard to stick out in front of those guys. But again, Jeremiah was really high on Dante Jackson. Uh, maybe it was Mike Mayock that was really high on Carlton Davis out of Auburn. And I'll give them like the tie right now for the fifth spot because I'd, I'd like to see more on them. But this is a really good class, because those are both guys that are going to go in the second round, maybe even earlier. And and the list goes on and on. You could have a lot of other guys on there. I think a later one that will stick out is Tony Brown from Bama. He likes to take risks a lot. Uh, you know, At Alabama, he was allowed to do that, because he was surrounded by so many good defenders that you know, he had Minka Fitzpatrick back there as a, as a free safety. And, you know, he was always had a front seven that was putting pressure on. So Tony Brown was allowed to make a lot of, you know, jumps. He was allowed to take risks because of the surrounding he was in. And we'll see how that goes going forward if he's the type that can still do that or if he goes to a team that won't allow that. Like, if he goes to Jacksonville, maybe he'll be set up nicely because he's surrounded by really good defenders. And if he's playing their nickel and he's jumping routes and he's you know diving in on tackles, maybe he looks good. But if he goes to a team like 
and I don't want to pick on the Browns because I think they're going to be improved, so I'm not going to do that. But if he goes to a team like the Bears, where you know maybe they don't have these cornerbacks coming back, they might lose their cornerbacks this year, and he goes and he has to prove that on the outside, he can't be taking risks like that. So it'll be interesting to see how Tony Brown does. You know, and there are a bunch of cornerbacks like that. He is just one of the more famous ones because he played for Bama. Uh, and a real deep sleeper I have is MJ Stewart from UNC. Uh, it sounds like he's having a great week at Senior Bowl week. A lot of people are talking about him. A lot of people are saying that he could be rising up these ranks. And this is where you get the advantage. You know, a lot of people don't want to be doing these all-star games and not, not getting hurt. And, you know, hey, last year, there, you know, this happens every year. And there, it's going to happen again where someone is playing in one of these all-star games or the combine or their pro day and they come down on a knee and all of a sudden they're missing their rookie year and they fall out of the first round and into the second or maybe third and it costs them millions of dollars because they were just trying to compete. So it's a really risky thing that these guys are doing. But at the same time, you got to risk it for the biscuit, right? You know, <laughs> the old saying. So MJ Stewart right now is one of those guys that are sticking out. We'll see how he does this weekend uh, during the Senior Bowl. But apparently that doesn't really matter a whole, a whole lot. Everyone says the most, the least important thing about the Senior Bowl is the game itself. So those are my top five corners. My top five safeties, also another deep group. You know, there's two guys that stick out as first round picks, and there are three guys that stick out as second rounders with a couple others that are peaking up. And it's a really good group. Number one, I mean, this is pretty clear consensus pick is Minka Fitzpatrick from Alabama. He's played all over the field. He's played head up corner, he's played nickel, he's played free safety, he's played strong safety. He's proven that he can do a whole lot, and people compare him to being Nick Saban's son, which I think should tell you everything you want. I mean, that's the type of guy you want as like the captain of your backfield. I'm a big fan of his. I, I really want the Browns to take him at number four. I think he'll still be there with their second first-round pick. I want them to go quarterback with one, and then Fitzpatrick with four. I don't think... Even if the Browns pass him, I don't think he gets past six, seven, eight. That range, I think that's like the lowest he goes. Maybe Tampa at seven is is a really good spot. Um, I don't like you know a lot of people are saying, "Ooh, Washington at 13. I don't think he makes it that far. I think he's too good of a prospect, and he's going to prove that because he can play corner. I think if he came into the draft as a corner, he'd be the number one corner and would go top twelve right off the bat, right there. But I think free safety, which is where Nick Saban said he's best, will be the spot he comes into the league as and just offer versatility of, hey, if you want me to play free safety and line up man-on-man on somebody, I can do that. I mean, the guy does everything right. You never really throw the ball at him. He is a sure tackler. He doesn't take risks. He doesn't gamble. He calls out the plays on the field. He's always lined up right, and he's constantly like the leader. And he's been playing for Bama for three seasons. And it's hard to see guys play for Bama for three years because they constantly have guys that are pushing for time. So you usually don't get, especially a D-back too, because those, those guys come in like hot and ready, ready to roll. I think Fitzpatrick is a clear top five prospect. He might be 
the number one defender in this class. It's 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 tight right now, but it should be he's as safe as they get with the pros. Number two is Derwin James out of Florida State. James is interesting because he's got the the height and the weight that everyone wants to say Cam Chancellor, and he's he's even like more slimmer than Chancellor. He's really tall and big like him, but he has less weight on him, so you'd think he can fly around better. He's still kind of raw though. Like you didn't, there were plenty of times, you know, he made huge plays this year and showed he's obviously a first round prospect, but. Is he like the top five type pick? No, he's not like Jamal Adams. He's not like Minka Fitzpatrick. But he's a very physical safety. And if you draft him to the right position like that, he's going to be really good. I know, I, The Cam Chancellor comparison is kind of lazy. But at the same time, it's also fair because there's not many guys as big as him. You, know, you can see him lining up in the box kind of as an extra linebacker at times. And as long as he continues to play physical... Uh, I don't see why he shouldn't be a really good pro. Now, on the opposite end of things is my number three safety, and we're going to drop into round two. Right now I'm seeing round three on this guy. I think he will rise up because he played so well at Texas this year. It was Deshaun Elliott. And he's a guy that he's more of your over-the-top safety. I think he showed a lot improvement this year. You know, he wasn't really a big-time prospect last year, and now this year he's talking about, you know, day two prospect in the NFL. And he's more of the free safety type as opposed to, you know, the Ronnie Harrisons, like the, you know, hard-hitting safeties that play close to the box. So it should be interesting with him going forward. Uh, I'd like to see him at the Combine, see how he does. Number four on my list is Justin Reed Stanford, another guy that, He's kind of like a tweener. Uh, I think he's he doesn't have the range that Elliott and Fitzpatrick have, and he doesn't really have the physicality and size that uh, that Derwin James has. But the thing with Justin Reed that sticks out is that he comes from a bloodline. His older brother is Eric Reed, formerly of LSU, now of the San Francisco 49ers and is a big-time pro, and he doesn't seem like a guy that's any worse than his brother. Uh, he's a Stanford guy, which, you know, if that ever matters to you, like being like a team leader on a team like Stanford, it always sticks out to me. So, again, all these pre-combine stuff, it's tough to uh, rate them, but I'm a big fan of Justin Reed's because of, of the lineage and also of where he played. My fifth and final spot uh, I let me make sure I got this right. Is Terrell Edmonds from VTech? Now, his brother, which I think is Tremaine Edmonds, uh, is a linebacker. So it'll be interesting going forward with, you know, judging the linebacker, judging the safety. Apparently, there have been Edmondses at VTech for a very long time, and this guy is another physical player, uh, hard hitting type safety, thicker build. So I want to get a better look at him. But uh, when when you watch him, though, uh, you see how physical he is. You know, he's like he's like 220 pounds. He's he's like he just is like thick 6'2". You see him, his neck, he, he like doesn't even have one. Kind of looks like a Barney Rubble neck out there. Uh, and 
Uh, I'm interested because I haven't heard much about these Edmonds guys. Uh, from what I was hearing is that they weren't expecting them to go to the pros. But, you know, that also didn't happen. So, uh, Edmonds, Terrell Edmonds, at the end of round two, possibly sneaks up a little bit more as one of those in-the-box type safeties. Uh, before I mention Ronnie Harrison, he's one that I expect to go a little bit later. I think once you see that, like Tony Brown, he was able to take some liberties on that defense of hard-hitting and taking risks, maybe that you know backfires a little bit when it comes to the combine. Kind of won't show that, oh, you know, I... I not any, not to say he was a one-trick pony, but kind of everyone remembers just that one thing about him. So we'll see going forward, but I like him as a later pick if you use him right. And also, my sleeper is Armani Watts from Texas A&M because he was much higher regarded this time last year, and he decided to go back to school. Because in a lot of ratings and rankings and mock drafts, I saw him as like, early 30s, you know, early second round pick, and right now he's not getting the same love, and I think it's strictly because of the class that he's in, in that there are so many other good safeties that are sticking out, and he might get pushed down the ladder just because of how many times do you draft safeties high, you don't really, you know, sometimes you think you can find like a diamond in the rough there, maybe you don't draft a guy high until, unless you're like absolutely positive that he's a an absolute game changer like a Minka Fitzpatrick. So maybe this will push him down the rankings a little bit. You know, maybe he should have come out last year. But he's in this draft. I think he's a bit of a sleeper because he, um, you know, he's just getting a little overshadowed right now. But it's a really interesting position, and I'll definitely check back in on it after the combine. You know, when pro days are coming in, and we're starting to do a little more mock drafts. Uh, I'm looking forward to my first mock draft will be after the Senior Bowl this weekend. And I'm going to do the first round, and I'll include some other you know, top 50-type prospects that could go in the first round. Quarterback is going to be heavy this year. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, yeah, so that was my top five D-backs next week. I'm not sure who I'm going to do next week, but uh, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, as I get more into this, this is what I do. This is all the fun that I have in these podcasts. Originally, was meant to do just this, and I'm really excited for it. Okay, so NFL draft rumors. I'm gonna do one team each week as they come in. Maybe I'll kick it up to two teams. So after reading a little bit on the New Orleans Saints, what they're gonna do with their first round pick. I think they're going to go best defensive player outside of safety because Fitzpatrick will likely be gone. And uh, assuming Chubb and Roquan Smith are gone, maybe it would be Derwin James, but Derwin James is safety. They don't really need safety right there. They could go another cornerback. Maybe they go Denzel Ward. Maybe they go Josh Jackson or one of the other corners if these guys are gone because they're going to be picking in the late 20s. Uh, Vita V will might likely be gone. Marcus Davenport is a name that's coming up a lot right now. He has been talked to a lot at the at the Senior Bowl week right now. He is a defensive end out of University of Texas San Antonio, the Roadrunners. And at first, it seemed like this was a fringe first round pick. 
but the way that practices have been going for him, and he's been talking to all the right teams that are picking in the mid-teens and, and you know top 10, he is possibly a top 10 pick right now. You know, he even spent a lot of time talking to the Browns. John Dorsey is a big fan of his. The Browns pick one and four. So unless they plan on trading up from 33, that doesn't seem really realistic. Or is he going to creep into the number four pick conversation? So maybe these guys are all out of New Orleans price range. Again, there's the two Edmonds brothers. Maybe they go after the linebacker. Maybe, you know, if they, if they have safety all figured out, it kind of seems like they do. Or they go Deron Payne, Alabama defensive tackle. Uh, he could go anywhere between early teens to early second round, just based on need. Because right now there's not a whole lot of defensive linemen that are in the first round. You have Davenport, you have Nick Chubb, not Nick Chubb, Bradley Chubb. Nick Chubb's the running back, Bradley Chubb's the defensive end. Vita Villa and Deron Payne. It's, there aren't a whole lot of defensive linemen getting the first-round love right now. So that's right now, you know, the Saints' dilemma is, you know, they're picking in the 20s. Do they make a move? They've made moves recently. They had a really nice rookie class last year, going with Ramchek, the tackle of Wisconsin. They had, obviously, Marshawn Lattimore, who was Defense Rookie of the Year, cornerback from Ohio State. They had Alvin Kamara in the third, who... If you listened to me last year, I said I really liked the pick. I just hated the fit because they had Adrian Peterson and Mark Ingram. And I like him as a receiving running back. I just didn't think he was going to get the opportunities. Well, they traded Adrian Peterson and Alvin Kamara came rookie of the year. So I'd like to say that I, I kind of hit that pick where a lot of people weren't willing to, uh, you know, kind of looked at it as uh, whatever. And last year was a really good running back class just like this year. And they also had Marcus uh, Williams, who, you know, he obviously was the goat at the end of the game with the Vikings because he whiffed and missed. And it's funny how everyone came to his defense instead of attacked him. It was wild. I know a lot of people were like, you know, there obviously were plenty of people like, what was that guy thinking? What was that guy doing? But for every guy that said that, every knowledgeable football person was like, hey, Watch out, Marcus Williams had a great year. And it's like, okay, we're not saying he didn't have a great year. We're not saying the player sucks. He made a bad play. Let's let's leave it at that. Like, he made a bad play. Game ended because he made a really bad play. And I understand that you don't want to get a penalty there, but he literally tackled air. And when the guy was in, in the in air, he should have been playing it a little off more, maybe forced him in bounds. I don't know. I mean, there are plenty of things he could have done. I know I don't want to play like Monday morning quarterback or especially two weeks later, but <laughs> it's just like, okay, all right, you know, it happened. Get over it. Uh, like, let's let's stop saying like, you know, oh, like they're there. The guy's a professional football player. He's going to have to deal with messing up. I mean, nobody was coming to the defense of, gosh, what was the D-back for the Denver Broncos? Joe Flacco threw a Hail Mary touchdown over this guy's head. It was a safety from UCLA. I can't believe I can't remember it because I was such a big fan of his. Oh, man. And it was just like when that happened, everyone just remembered, oh, man. 
Could you believe that guy let that over his head? And I was pissed at the time. Trust me. His name is Raheem Moore. There it is. He let it up, and I think I got that right. Uh, but Raheem Moore was the goat in that one, and obviously they went on to win the Super Bowl, and that sucked because I hate the Ravens. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, I'm getting off topic. Marcus Williams was the, uh, I think, a fourth-round pick for the Saints, and another one who just, hey, he was he had a really good rookie year, they had a really good draft class, and do the Saints go best defensive player? That kind of seems like they're mojo right now because they have a couple good defensive linemen they could use like one of those guys at the end of first round on defense you always just want to keep on adding pieces and pieces if they had a good defense this year just keep on adding in first round talent and just filtering in with these guys and out with old guys probably wouldn't be a bad thing i'm assuming they're going to re-sign drew Brees, so that shouldn't be the issue they have a running back stable. Their offensive line is pretty good. Maybe they go another receiver. You know, Michael Thomas is awesome, but they could use kind of another guy because their secondary guy was like Ted Ginn. They traded Brandon Cooks, you know, before the season started. They still made the playoffs without Cooks. Michael Thomas is like a reception king and he makes plays downfield as well as, you know, just being an intermediate reception guy, but they could probably use a guy, maybe Cortland Sutton or Calvin Ridley, depending upon who goes first, because there's not going to be a lot of wide receivers going round one this year. So a lot to think about going forward, but early on right now, Saints go with best defensive player, and right now I'm looking at Deron Payne or one of the Edmonds guys. Possibly, uh, possibly Davenport, but I think Davenport ends up going top ten. So yeah, that's my little, my little NFL draft rumor of the day and question of the week. NFL question of the week. This is a good one. Would you rather have a dynamic one-two cornerback combo or one-two pass rush combo? Right. So, would you rather have two stud defensive ends? Or two stud corners. And that's tough because obviously both are great, right? You, you'd love having both. You know, the Seattle Seahawks won a Super Bowl with stud all four DBs, not just cornerbacks, but four stud DBs. And then again, the Broncos won it with a hell of a pass rush with Von Miller and DeMarcus Ware. And other teams have shown that pass rush can really help you out. I would lean pass rush because I think everything starts up front, right? You could have all the good D-backs in the world, but if you don't have a D-line putting pressure on the quarterback, they can wait all day, you know? And the more time the quarterback has, he's going to eventually get your DBs as long as the quarterback is a good quarterback. So... I think it's easier to hide weaknesses in the defensive backfield than it is to hide right up at the line of scrimmage. Because if you're not getting pressure on the quarterback, he will eventually get the completion, move the ball downfield. But if you are always attacking the quarterback, if you're constantly in his face, flushing him out of the pocket, you are helping your D-backs, including your corners, 
so that if you have a corner who's not that great, if he has to cover for less time, he can kind of be shadowed there. Whereas I don't think it works the other way around. I don't think really great coverage can force a guy into being a better pass rusher. Maybe that's the offensive lineman in me defending, you know, line saying, hey, you can't just force a, you know, pass rush based on coverage. I know you can a little bit, but not to the extent that a defensive line can help out your DBs. So if I had to pick, I would go with the DNs. And that's hard to say because the Browns haven't really had that pass rush combo, but they have had Dixon and Minifield at the end of the 80s. You know, the Browns were really good in the late 80s, right? And one of the big reasons was they had a cornerback combo that basically invented the name, the nickname, the Dog Pound. Like, they they were the guys that were behind that because they were so good. You know, uh, Frank Minifield and Hanford Dixon. So, I'm a big fan of that. Obviously, if you can get either of those things, the one-two pass rush or the one-two cornerback combo, you're in really good shape because you don't often get that. But if I had a stud D end and a stud corner, and I had a chance of pairing them up with another one, I would go with the D end. You know, so like the Browns and Miles Garrett, if we had another stud corner, if we had Marshawn Lattimore, who would I rather pair up with? I would pair up with Miles Garrett because I think it all starts up front and you could help out your D-backs better up front than you can up front with better D-backs. So that's just me. A lot of people will think other sides. Um, you know, you got to keep in, in mind the current NFL rules and how cornerbacks get flagged the longer you wait into plays. You know, it's tough to be a corner, so if you cover for less amount of time by having a really good defensive front, you know, you're not, you're probably getting less penalties in the back too. Yeah. Okay. I just convinced myself that I'm, uh, that that's the right call is rather have the pressure up front because of the way that it's tough to cover receivers this year. You're in 2018 and beyond. So you want them covering for the least amount of time possible. So that's, that's my answer there. All right. Now, don't have a movie to review this week. We've got the Oscar nominations out, and as they approach, I'll get more into the Oscar noms. I haven't seen all of them. I'm excited to see uh, The Darkest Hour, which is the Winston Churchill movie, The Post, which is the Washington Post movie, and The Three Billboards movie. And uh, those three have a lot of nominees, both in the actor and actresses categories, but also best film. So I'm interested to watch those three movies. Hopefully I get to one of them this weekend and I can review them next week. But for now, we're going to review Black Mirror. I know, not a movie. It's a television show. It's on Netflix. It's on Netflix, but it actually originated on BBC. The first two seasons were only three episodes long, right? They're, you know, nearly an hour-long episode. So, you know, taking commercial accounts and... They become like 45 minutes, but there were two, three, three episode seasons followed with the second season had a TV special. Uh, they called it the White Christmas. It was a TV special and it was about like an hour and a half long. It was, to my, my favorite, I think, episode still. It's the one with John Hamm. And it's three mini stories in one basically 
just talking about the lives of these guys, how they messed up. But ever since it's come to Netflix, they do six episode seasons and they really dive into, they go all over the place. So I won't judge the first three seasons. We'll just do season four today and the most recent. So I've heard a lot of backlash, uh, which I thought was kind of unfair because I think just the whole world that they operate in is so complicated and they do such a really good job of it. Now, the first episode I was a little critical about, this was the USS Callister. Also, spoiler alert, right? And Ian, that should go without saying right now. I'm talking about Black Mirror. <coughs> Sorry. And I just want to, I'm, I'm not going to dive into every single episode. I've decided against that uh, because that could take a while. But what I want to do is bring up different types of psychological questions, you know, and theories that come up in each episode, right? So, spoiler alert, going into each episode. Now, in USS Callister, the episode is about cookies and about copies of people's consciousness and, you know, basically stealing people's intellectual, not even intellectual property, but using their likeness, their image, their thoughts for your personal game. It's definitely an invasion of privacy. And that was the big thing that I noticed in that episode is everyone has a problem with the invasion of privacy part of it. Uh, obviously, this guy is a real creep that he made copies of all of his friends. Not even friends, they're work buddies. Not even buddies. They, they He didn't like them. That's the reason he made copies of them. Outside of the one girl they had a crush on, everyone else he didn't like at work. They had one thing or another where they made fun of him, they laughed at him, or whatever, they disrespected him at work. But I thought it was just very interesting that the whole concept was invasion of privacy because the reason that the cookie system was illegal was because they felt that these cookies had human rights. Now, they were just copies. They weren't actual people. And at the end of the episode, they were the ones that won. It was basically like a computer defeated the man and the man died in the episode. So are these cookies real people? They're not, you know, they don't, ha they're not the actual person. The actual person had no idea that this was going on. It was like being told, if you're told right now, hey, someone actually had a copy of your brain and was torturing it, you'd feel like violated, but it still didn't affect you at all because it didn't happen to you. You know, it happened to a copy of you. So I guess that's the big discussion right there is what's the punishment for that type of torture slash identity theft, right? So interesting, an interesting topic. I think uh, it was a dark episode they, and they should have made it darker because... They made it seem like it was a happy ending, and it certainly wasn't because a computer won and a man died, as opposed to, you know, man actually living. The guy did something wrong, but I don't think death should have been the right punishment. The next episode was Crocodile, which, you know, the big question in this one was, to me, how far would you go to protect your image, right? This woman who was successful in her line of work, and her past was coming to bite her in the ass, and she basically killed her way 
into good graces of other people. Uh, <clears throat> this episode, Crocodile, where um, uh, it was named Crocodile because of crocodile tears, apparently. And the crocodile tears are fake tears. And that's why I think they went with it is like, oh, she cried these fake tears over people she didn't care about. And she killed people just because they witnessed her killing another person. Uh, it was dark. I don't think there was much of a psychological questioning here. It was, what would you be willing to do to hide the past? Are you willing to kill? Because the episode started with this woman. Let's call her... Jane. I forget her name. I watched this episode like three weeks ago. Let's call her Jane. Uh, Jane in a, you know, was a passenger in a car, and the driver, who was drunk and was smoking weed, ran over a biker and killed him. They threw him into the ocean, you know, to not be seen again, basically burying him there because it was in the middle of, like, friggin' Finland or whatever, somewhere way up north in Scandinavia. And this comes back to bite them later when this guy can't handle the guilt anymore. So she kills the guy because she doesn't want to get, you know, tossed into this whole thing. And then she finds out that someone witnessed her using this high-tech technology that insurance companies use where they can trace people's memories of what they saw on a certain time and night. And this woman was eventually questioned for something completely unrelated. And she killed the insurance agent because she knew the insurance agent was searching in her head. So the big question is, where would you go? How far would you go to protect a lie? And... The other question could be, what is, you know, are you allowed to poke around in someone's brain if it could help with something as little as a lawsuit? You know, like, you know, the woman, the insurance agent said, oh, I'm not interested in whatever you were watching, you know, because the woman tried to play it off like she was watching porn. And the insurance agent was like, oh, I'm not interested in, in that. That's not what I'm here for. It's like, yeah, but do you still have the rights to do that, to look through my mind just to see if this guy deserves money from a pizza company because they hit him with his car, right? You know, it's an interesting question. How far should pe like the government or insurance agency or the world be allowed to look into your brain? Because you could have nasty thoughts in there. It couldn't. It couldn't be all crimes. Maybe she just had weird thoughts, and it's like, sorry, I imagine killing this guy because I hate him. It's a really interesting question. Next episode, uh, next psychological question to look into, Archangel. <coughs> sorry. This one was very straightforward. Uh, to protect your children, to locate them, to never lose them, you can put something in them, uh, like a chip almost, like you know you do with your pets, but it slides into their brain, and you can also control what they see, what they don't see. And that was, you know, immediately when this woman put this Archangel project into her daughter, you could tell this was going to go poorly because, well, it was, you know, it, it was the typical helicopter mother, right? She's a single mom, which stuck out to me too because it's like usually when they pick these, it's not like a, a parent and a couple. It's either a parent who feels like she has to do everything on her own, whether she's in a couple or not. Or she's just a single mom where this is all she has and she has to look out for her little baby. So she doesn't like her baby seeing like 
angry dog, so she blurs that out. Uh, anytime the daughter's heart rate goes up, she blurs that out. So basically this girl walks around seeing blurry images all over the place because they might frighten her. And that's the classic case of if you shelter a kid, they're going to go they're going to be off, the ones going off to college getting drunk and alcohol poisoning night number 1. Meanwhile, if you allow them to live a little bit in high school, maybe they don't go do that. And basically we follow this girl, she grows up she still has these images in her, like, the, you know, blurred out, and then her mom ends it when she goes into high school, but one night she wants to find out, where's my daughter, what's she doing, she's 16 now, I want to see where she is, and she catches her basically having sex, which looks like, yikes, okay, don't want to see that, uh, super invasion of privacy, if we're going off of the first two episodes, another one where it's like, you do you have the right to see your daughter's thoughts? to see your daughter, what she's doing at all times. You know, she also catches her daughter doing drugs at one point in this episode. And it gets to a point where she gets in a fight with her daughter. Her daughter freaks out at her because she finds out you're basically stalking me. You know, it's one thing to wonder where I am. It's one thing to question where I am. It's another thing to watch where I am at all times. Like, this was always going to come and haunt this woman. And I feel like this woman has played the overprotective parent in every role she has ever been in. So it wasn't it that's probably why it wasn't that uh surprising to me because I'm like I've seen this woman. She was a crazy mom in something else too. Anyway, uh the big question that was in this was you know, how far would you go to protect your child and how far should you allow to be go, you know, allow to go? Uh, I wouldn't get this Archangel thing for my kids because, you know, I think that just messing with what they can see and what they can't see can affect their entire life. Like, I would understand the chip thing to an extent, right? Being able to track them if they, in case they get lost. I understand that. And I don't know if I would do that, but I understand it. The thing I don't like and I would never do would be the thing where you can block them from seeing things. It's like sheltering them like that is never going to end well. You know, she couldn't even see blood. She, the girl was like 10 years old and she wasn't even allowed to see blood because it would raise her heart rate or whatever. And her mom was blocking it from her. Or, you know, kids wanted to show her something on their phone and she couldn't see it because it was possibly violent. It's crazy. Uh, moving along to Hang the DJ. This was a happy episode. Uh, it was about a simulation of a dating app and how each simulate, let's say you go on, you match with someone and it tells you you're a 98.2% match. That means it ran 100 simulations, basically 100 storylines between these two people. And in 98 of them, you end up with this person. It was very cool because we didn't know that the people we were following were a simulation until the very end. And it was really interesting because throughout the episode, we thought, wow, they are living in a world where it's all about who you are dating. And it sets you up on these really weird, you know, dating relationships that have expiration dates. And you could see it. You can see how long the expiration date is if you click a button at the same time as the other person. So let's say you go on your first date and you're like, all right, let's get it over with. Let's see how long this, this expiration date is. And you click and you're like, wow, this relationship is only 36 hours. I guess uh, let's have some fun while we're here. 
and then you click on your next one and you find out it's for five months and you're like, whoa, it's a little bit longer. Okay, let's enjoy this five months together. And then you go back and you say, oh my gosh, I'm on, I'm in the same relationship with that girl I was 36, uh, 36 hours with. And it's crazy. It keeps on setting you up. And one of them was, you know, a 20 year relationship. And this guy was like, whoa, okay, this is a real relationship. And then he lied to the girl about looking into it. And the number starts going down and down and down. And it turned out to just be 24 hours because he betrayed her trust because they said they wouldn't look at it. And then he had to know and he looked and he ruined everything. And then the next day it was like, okay, time's up. You have now been, you know, found your soulmate. And they're like, no, 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 no. We want these to be the soulmates. Let's run away together. And they find out that was the simulation the whole time. And that was just one of the 98 simulations where they were together. So I didn't love that because I was like, oh, I thought we were following real characters. Instead, we were just following one one hundredth of the character's relationship, you know, or one one hundredth of a chance of their relationship. You know, it's it was a very strange way. I thought it was it's still a happy episode because the simulation we're following ended up together. And I guess the big question in this one is, you know, would you sign up for the this relationship thing knowing that your relationships have an expiration date and I would if I knew that in the end I end up with the right person I think that's a really cool uh, insurance policy I think that's really nice I, I am one that believes in that type of you know hey there's the, the everyone has someone out there for them and if there's an app that can find you the perfect person uh, I would totally do it, even if it meant going on these weird relationships with other people so that it could learn about me and find out, hey, who is the perfect person for you? So, I don't know, I, I, I would do it, is, uh, is what I'm saying. But uh, it, it did draw up some interesting questions on what people would be doing in the real world and would you be willing to, to be in a 10-year relationship if you knew you weren't going to end up with this person forever, but it was going to be a good relationship, or would you want to cut it off now and just kind of skim along the edges and do these, you know, 36 hour relationships? It's, it's a tough call because, you know, wouldn't the heartbreak be worse after 10, 10 years, you know, it's like, Oh, you spent all this time with someone. Wouldn't you rather just spend 36 hours or is the time worth it? Did it shape you? Did it make you? Was it really great together? You don't know how it's going to end in 10 years. It could end with someone dying. It could end uh, amicably. Maybe you meet someone else instead. It's very. It was a very interesting concept. They went a completely different finish. I felt like they could have and they could have alternate endings to that episode. That is something to look out for. Hang the DJ alternate endings. Ooh, I like it. So two episodes left. The fifth episode of the season was called Metalhead. This one I really liked. I think I'm going to watch it tonight because I'm such a big fan of it. Metalhead was about basically the most dystopian world <clears throat> that you could be in in uh, Black Mirror. It took place, it was all in black and white, so you could, I don't know if they did that strictly to show that this is like end of the world times. I think it kind of was supposed to symbolize that. And uh, I think the black and white also symbolized the fact that we are past all the technologies and stuff. You saw the technology they're using 
it wasn't all the smart stuff that they've had in the past. This seemed like technology had taken over and ruined the world as we knew it, basically stripping it down to black and white. Black being, hey, hey you know, you can you can look at that as whatever you want. It could be a race thing. It could be, you know, black represented the technology and white represented the humans. Uh, and that's not meant to be a race thing, but maybe there are race things in the black and white episode. You know, because this was, humans were basically being hunted by technology throughout this episode. They didn't have all the advantages you've seen through three and a half seasons of Black Mirror. They didn't have all of the, all the advancements in that. That's why it made me think of it was so distant in the future that basically the world had ended as we've known it. There was no one on the roads. There are basically only three people in the whole episode and they all died at the hands of technology that killed them. These dogs that are basically like Roombas on speed uh, that um, I'm assuming were originally made for humans, by humans, to like help them with things and eventually just took over. I don't know. Th there was a thought that they might be controlled by humans still and humans hunting humans using these technologies. But I like that they left it open-ended. I think it was scarier that way, not knowing who that who the bad guy is and that there is no enemy because technology has run the world over. I think that's the scariest part, is that the whole episode could be, hey, we've reached a world where we are just a minority and we are being eliminated by this majority, not one sicko bad guy. Pretty scary, pretty fucked up episode. Um, the music and the ominous tones of the whole episode had you kind of sitting on the edge of your seat. It was really intense, and I really liked it. I know a lot of people didn't like it, and I would love to explain why you should like it. So if you don't like the Metalhead episode, come to me and I'll be happy to explain all the deeper meanings of this episode, because it wasn't just oh, you know, a bunch of people getting killed by robots. I'm like, nah, this is this had a lot deeper of an episode meaning. I'm a big fan of Metalhead. I think it was possibly my favorite episode of the series. Not just the season, of the series. And finally, the season finale is called Black Museum. This one had a lot of callbacks. A lot of Easter eggs. It brought back... It had the lollipop and all the other DNA samples from U.S. Callister. Oh, well, the episode, it was about an hour and a half. Maybe maybe it wasn't that long. Maybe it was like an hour and 15 minutes. Where this woman, uh, she was charging her car up, not gassing, charging her car up, and she sees a museum. It was called the Black Museum, and I think it's supposed to be a crime museum. And you go in there and it's all technologically related crime exhibits. You know, artifacts found from these weirdos. and A lot of the things we've seen. The bathtub that was in it was the bathtub that uh, the woman killed another guy in, in Crocodile. Uh, they had the lollipop, they had the milk carton, they had a bunch of the other DNA things, including the DNA scanner that was in USS Callister. Uh, they had, you can go back to the previous seasons 
there were uh, exhibits on uh, the you, um, the first ever episode where the prime minister, who was like the whole uh, like the pig episode, and I'll just say it at that. They had an exhibit on the guy that hung himself that was blackmailing the prime minister that kidnapped the the girl. He was there, and then they also brought in new stuff too. Oh, they also they even had a comic that had the 15 million merits people on it, which I thought was really cool and subtle. So they had a callback to, I think the number was 12 of the 18 total episodes. So really interesting that they really went through a lot. And in this episode, they had three different storylines all ending pretty poorly that brought back to this. And this weirdo guy who worked for... Uh, Tucker, T-C-K-R, which was also the San Junipero episode, worked for Tucker Industries and brought on these new advancements in tech that were kind of shady and have been tried but weren't exactly legal. And this guy basically at the end of the episode found out that, oh no, someone I've wronged in the past, their family member has come back to get me. But in the episode, there were three major things. The first one was this brain kit where if only doctors could feel what their patients were trying to tell them and, you know, oh, I have chest pains. What was chest pains? You know, if the doctor knew what the pain was, he could diagnose it better, but he doesn't have the side effects. So by wearing this helmet that this other person has, you know, you put this helmet on the per on the patient and the pain that they are triggering goes into this doctor's head and he knows exactly why what why this person's hurting he's like oh i i need to give this this person's having a heart attack it's it's simple or oh this person needs an appendectomy you know or this person is actually pregnant look at that and it goes so much deeper because the guy is then juiced on this pain he's also juiced on the pleasure that brings because you know if he's having sex with someone and that person is wearing the helmet, he feels like multiple sides of things. Uh, but he like gets like uh, hooked on all of this pain. And I think the question that this brings in is like, would you ever want to experience the pain even though you wouldn't have to live with the side effects? And I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I, I am interested. I don't know if I would still do it though. I, uh, I don't know. I would want to experience things that only like that might kill you. You know, you wouldn't, I wouldn't want to feel what death would be like because I think that would kind of shake me in a, in a wrong way. Uh, but it's an interesting question. Would you want to feel how those feel things do you, would you want to feel what a shotgun to the chest would feel like, even if, like, in, like fully knowing you would never be shot, you just want, like, what would it feel like? And I don't know, I think I would want to, but I think it's just such a scary thought that I wouldn't ever do it. The next part of this episode was this woman got into an accident and was in a coma, a vegetative state, and... This guy, the Tucker Institute guy, brings in this idea. He says, hey, 
I can download your wife's consciousness into your brain so that she feels everything you can feel, but she's always in your brain. And this was always, this episode was always going to end poorly because it's like, all right, well, this guy is living with his wife slash like girlfriend in his brain forever. Like every time he goes to the bathroom, she's just like, oh, put the seat down or like, like, ew, Jason, like, like, put that stuff away. She never goes away because she has nothing else. She is in your brain at all times. She sees everything you see. Literally, if you look at someone, she's like, oh, looking at her, huh? And at the end of the episode, at the end of this series, and the only reason they did this was because for their kid, she wanted a chance to hug and hold him. So they downloaded her into his brain and he realized it was a big mistake he turned her off and they re-downloaded her into this like bear, this like toy. And it had very, it, it was rough because the only way to com communicate with her was ask her questions and then she would have two answers. And it would either the bear say, I love you or uh, bear needs a hug or whatever. And bear needs a hug would be like, no, and I love you would be yes, and it was like, then she was basically tortured as a toy because she was stuck in that toy for eternity. That one was a little, that one was a little messed up because you're basically just putting someone in something for the rest of their life. Like, they should be able to, I don't know, that's another one. The question there is, what would be the moral situation? You know, what what would be the moral compass there? Would you allow someone to live in a toy? You know, their consciousness would be there, but since they can't feel anything in their human body, at least they could see stuff as the toy. I don't know. I don't know about that one. And then finally, and this was the most messed up one, was uh, this guy who was on death row uh, sold his consciousness, his afterlife spirit, is what he was selling. He said, what do I care? I'm not going to be alive, so I don't want it. And uh, he sold his spirit for money that his family could use after he died. And then when he was on the electric chair, they killed him. The guy at Tucker Institutes, shocker, that bought his spirit, put it on display, and the spirit was the guy in the executioner's chair, and it gave you a chance. He's like, here, pull the lever. You have a chance to electrocute this guy. And it was basically, it wasn't a simulation. It was an actual <laughs> execution of the electrocution of this guy. And his spirit basically lived with this for the rest of, you know, eternity. Basically sitting in this room, waiting to be electrocuted by another person in the chair. It's a wild episode, and it turns out like the guy ended up getting his because the girl that came in was the family member of the guy that was electrocuted. <clears throat> but that's another one. The final question of the season would be, what would you be willing to do, you know, to someone's spirit? Would you be willing to pull the electric chair button, push the button or pull the lever of somebody that was on death row, you know? Could you do that? It's not actually to the actual person. It's just to their spirit. They actually went through the pain already, but they'd be going through it again by you doing it. Now, 
would you do that to the most the person you hate the most in the world? I would say yes only if they deserved it. If they were a murderer, if they were like a rapist or an abuser, like these are things, you know, the the Larry Nasser guy, I feel like he would deserve it. But this is another dark one because it shows, you know, do you have that in in you? Do you have that in you to kind of like make those black mirror decisions? And that's why this show is something else. Like that is oof, woof makes you go down a deep and dark path that you didn't think you had to go down. So yeah, those are the questions I leave you from this from this season of Black Mirror. Didn't think I was actually going to go all the way down that rabbit hole, but spent the last 20 minutes talking about that. So listen, thank you again for listening to the podcast. Um, I am a big Black Mirror fan, so hopefully uh, those psychological questions, you know, is something that you, uh, <laughs> like, think about. You know, this this show makes you think a lot. But anyway, next week... Uh, I will review one of the Oscar-nominated movies. We will jump into another position. Uh, we will talk about the Super Bowl coming up. Uh, I didn't talk about the conference championships because I didn't need to. We'll talk about those next week. We'll talk about another position going into the NFL draft. Maybe do a little NBA All-Star talk. And we will have Sarah Swenerton on to talk Bachelor. Uh, as we approach the end of the season. So thank you again for listening and joining in. Uh, Take care, everybody. Thank you.